This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Cartographers, a podcast that charts our changing cultural landscape and provides hope for 21st century Christian leaders. We are Bryce Hales and Ashley Hales, a pastor and a PhD. Welcome to this conversation. Here at The Cartographers, we are talking about the culture wars. How have they flared up in the recent years and what can Christians do about it? In this conversation, I sit down with Susanna Black Roberts to talk about her own conversion and how beauty might be an antidote to the warring factions of the culture wars. It'll give you hope to remember that Christian belief and thought and practice is actually much more solid than the alternatives. Listen in. Welcome back to The Cartographers. I'm Ashley Hales, and today I have the pleasure of chatting with Susanna Black Roberts. We're continuing our conversations about the culture wars, and are there alternatives to living in this tribal identity that we find lived out online and in the church? And today, Susanna is going to be sharing with us a little bit about beauty as an antidote to the culture wars. Susanna Black Roberts is an associate editor of Mere Orthodoxy. She got her BA from Amherst College and MA from Boston University. She's an editor at Plow and she tweets at Susania. So we're so excited to have you. Thanks so much for asking me. Yeah, you're welcome. You know, I remember seeing um, a thread of yours on Twitter about how beauty is actually more of an apologetic, right? Then often when Christians, when we think about apologetics, we think about having the right answer, answering all the questions of skeptics. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what does it look like for beauty to be an antidote to the culture wars? Well, I mean, I guess when I was sort of thinking about it, um, I was thinking in terms of my own experience. I did not grow up Christian at all. Um, I'm sort of ethnically half Jewish. I grew up completely secular on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, where we have just moved back to actually from Queens, although we're splitting our time. Um, so we're here half the time. Um, and, you know, when I was growing up, not having, we, you know, we occasionally went to this Unitarian church, um, but we didn't, you know, we weren't churchgoers. I didn't, was not raised to believe that there was a God. Um, I was kind of ra- like, it was basically materialism, but like also we didn't really talk about it much. So it wasn't like a strong, my parents weren't like atheists in a kind of aggressive way. They just were kind of like agnostics and whatever. And for me, um, my conversion, actually a lot of the groundwork for it at least was just through the experience of um, various kinds of beauty um, and loving New York in particular, loving my city um, and like really passionately loving my city and sort of experiencing it as, um, as though it, there, 
as, as though it were pointing towards something else. Like I didn't know what that meant, but I definitely was very distinctly experiencing New York as though it were pointing towards something beyond it. And the beauty of the city itself kind of pointed me towards something. I didn't know what that was. There were all, you know, all kinds of other sorts of beauty as well. Um, you know, the beauty that I found in nature, um, the beauty that I found in my family, um, beauty, broadly speaking, the sort of delight and joy and like in, intense sense of quasi aesthetic goodness that I, that I found in being with my family, um, in our place in Connecticut, my conversion was partly due to the fact that there was not a good explanation for the things that I was experiencing in the world, um, beauty in particular. And then this thing that seemed to, um, be a combination of beauty and moral goodness. Like those two things seem to be linked in some way. And there's just not like, it, it was sort of like I was seeing things. I was, you know, I was seeing a color, I was seeing a blue car outside and there was no, you know, metaphysical explanation for how there could be such a thing as a blue car. Like it was really, it's when you perceive goodness and beauty and you don't have any metaphysical foundations for that, if you're kind of alert and willing to ask questions, that starts to really not make sense. And so your options are, you know, you have a couple of options. You can be like, well, what I'm experiencing is not real. Um, it's like an epiphenomenon of like my, you know, brain processes and, and, and chemicals. Um, or the way that I think that the world is probably isn't the way that it is because it's not accounting for everything that I observe. Um, and I kind of went with the latter um, and ended up Christian. <laughs> <laughs> the short end of the story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you wrote this um, on Twitter. I just think it's so wonderful. My whole life since conversion, I have had a sense of the trajectory of the world slash culture slash non-Christians lives as towards Christ, because that's how it worked for me. My baseline was that you wake up in a fully formed world full of story and strangeness and extreme weather and holidays and beautiful architecture and Arthurian legends, but that there's a mystery about it because there's no metaphysical accounting for how solidly wonderful it is. Not just wonderful, but seemingly pregnant with meaning. No one around me was Christian, and most of them, if they had thought about it, would have not been moral re uh, realists. They were mostly materialists, but there was a flimsiness you read about. Um in that sort of philosophy. So how is it that Christian Christianity, Christian thought, Christian practice was able to give that meaning to you? What was that process in that conversion of, of moving from, I need to actually reevaluate how I'm living my life and beauty is the thing that's drawing me into this story of Christ and his goodness? Sure. So, I mean, I, I, part of it was that like I was having these questions and like, like there was very clearly like something was not adding up. And also like there was this, I also, it, it wasn't just a neutral, like, Oh, this does not make sense. Logically. It was also very emotional. It was very like whole self stuff. And so I was kind of having these various existential crises um, as one does. And um, my dad, who is the Jewish one, um, his, you know, he not practicing, his parents were Trotskyists. So he grew up not, not practicing either. Um, he gave me a bunch of the C.S. Lewis apologetics to read. He had read me the Narnias when I was little, but he did. Yeah. He gave me, um, I think surprised by joy was the first one that I read, um, which wasn't one of the apologetics. It was Lewis's uh, autobiography. And it was just like, Oh, I'd had no idea anyone else 
thought like this or experienced this stuff. And Lewis's idea of senzuch, which the German word for kind of yearning, um, yearning towards beauty, yearning towards joy, which is a kind of joy itself, even though it's a sense of lack, um, was exactly what I was experiencing. I had no idea anyone else experienced this. And Lewis's account of the way that Christianity eventually kind of answered that totally resonated. And I was like, well, okay, I can see that. I can see how that would be true. And I ended up deciding to get baptized when I was 16. Um, this totally freaked my parents out. So I ended up getting baptized at a UCC church, Riverside Cathedral in Manhattan. Um, the joke is that UCC stands for Unitarians Considering Christ, <laughs> which is kind of accurate. It was very liberal Protestant. Um, that also kind of like, you know, I wasn't totally, it, it wasn't a totally coherent. I'm not sure what I was saying yes to. I didn't really, I skipped all the pre-baptism classes. I think there were pre-baptism classes. I did, there wasn't, I didn't really go to church after that. Um, and it kind of, I, if I was regenerate, I would say that my regeneration went into remission. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, Yeah. So I started becoming a Platonist and Platonism really was also this kind of like sense of, okay, the, the, like real, the way that reality is, there is real goodness here. Um, and there is also very obviously, it, it can't, it really can't be the case that, that matter is all there is because like there are numbers and where's the number three? Like you can point to three apples, but you can't point to three, but you can do things with math that then like get things done in the real world, i.e. you can make rockets go off and you can, you know, you can make buildings that don't fall down using math. Um, therefore, there has to be some immaterial reality. Like it's really not logically tenable at all that materialism is true. When you really grow up thinking the world is a certain way, it kind of takes a lot to change your actual beliefs about the world. Not what you kind of wish were true or hope were true or think might be cool if it were true, but like, oh, the world's really not that way. So in grad school, actually, when I was in Cambridge for grad school, I ended up going to a vineyard church which the theology was super flaky and the aesthetics were terrible. Speaking of beauty, like it, it was very puzzling to me because I hadn't really known about any kind of Christianity. The only Christianity that I really known about was sort of C.S. Lewis-ish. And so this kind of contemporary evangelical charismatic stuff was very puzzling to me. However, they definitely did not believe that Jesus was dead. And I'm pretty sure they were like among the first people I had ever met who believed that Jesus was alive. Like they really did believe this. And then they encouraged me to pray. And, you know, so I started praying and really kind of expecting God to answer. And then God definitely did. And then, then it really kind of, then, you know, the whole thing happens and you get the fear of the Lord, which is terrifying. And you start to like worry about things you never worried about and your conscience kicks in and then your conscience goes crazy. And you start to like worry about like, is it okay if I like own anything you know, should I become an itinerant preacher? And I actually, in grad school, I made friends with this like street preacher guy in, in Cambridge, or I guess in Boston. And I said, should, you know, should I drop out of grad school and become an itinerant preacher? And he's like, oh no, you stay in grad school. <laughs> <laughs> um, we all got a lane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you know, it really was like, okay, the Holy Spirit is totally messing with all of my life. 
and I don't know what's going to end up, what I'm going to be able to end up keeping. Um, everything that I thought is beautiful, like maybe the beauty part is a, like a wrong perception. And then, you know, but then like you, so you put everything down and you, or you, you offer everything and like, you're like, I don't know what I get to keep. And then God kind of gives you stuff back. Um, and so the beauty part was part of it. It turns out, yes, God does love beauty. And that in fact was what I like, I was picking up what he was putting down, so to speak. The world is very solidly itself and very solid. Like God is really solidly God, God is like, you don't even want to say he exists because that's theologically not accurate, but he, you know, he really is. And the world really is as Christianity teaches. It is, that is the world. Like, so we don't have to hassle people into believing this. But I think a lot of the anxiety that I see among Christians, um, there's a, this great anxiety that like people are falling away from the faith. And it's obviously very personal. It's like you're worried that your children are going to fall away from the faith. And so I totally get that. And, you know, and so like the sense that unless you're a raised Christian, like, it's not just that you might not stay Christian. It's that like Christianity might not be true. Like that's kind of the sense that I get from a lot of conservative evangelicals who are worried about their children falling away there. It seems, it sometimes feels like they're worried that it might not, it might just be true that Christianity isn't real and it needs to be kept real by the faith of like, it's not real unless it's real for you. Right. Right. Yeah. The very strong sense that unless people shape up and don't, you know, and aren't allowed to fall away and society is structured such that they can't fall away, then they won't believe and they won't, there's no way to come to Christianity. There's no like conversion from atheism or from secularism is kind of not possible. Like that's, so you have to stay Christian. You can't become Christian. And it feels like to me, it feels like, sometimes it seems to me that like these are people who aren't really experiencing Christianity as beautiful themselves. Right. 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 There's such a um, tight holding and, yeah, and a fear it, that's really sounds yeah, like. Yeah. And it, it really feels to me like, I feel like you don't understand how unsatisfying and wimpy, like really deeply viscerally unsatisfying and obviously untrue secular like secularism and materialism are like they will not satisfy you will always have the hunger for jesus you'll always have the hunger for the kingdom so i i just wrote this obituary for tim keller and one of the things that he did so obviously the main thing that he did was he was an apologist and an evangelist for secular new yorkers so i just have seen so many people who there's like this profile and you know, it's not like a ton, ton of people, but I feel like I do know about 10 people quite closely as friends who are like this, where they grew up evangelical or fundamentalist, had very, very intense, like ambition and artistic desire, like desire to do some kind of art or filmmaking or, um, you know, visual arts or fashion or something like, um, you know, being a novelist and, and really wanted to move to New York and did so and ended up going to Redeemer or one of these churches. And when they, when they, and these are people who you would a hundred percent 
expect to be ex-evangelicals within a year um, and start talking about how oppressive their upbringing was. And what tended to happen, and this did like happen a lot, (laughs) is that um, they would go to Redeemer or whatever, and they would watch Babette's Feast. Babette wasn't just like an artist. She was also trained. And she was this kind of like, you know, decadent Parisian urban trained chef and making, you know, food as art. And she, you know, sort of reminded this very pietistic sect of, uh, you know, Norwegians, Jutlanders, whatever they were, um, of the beauty of holiness and of the generosity of grace. And so, you know, then, so then the, the evangelicals are fundamentalists who come to New York. They're like, Oh, you know, through Tim Keller's ministry and through like understanding the world in this way, I can see that like, I can actually pursue excellence and I can love beauty and I can be a Christian at the same time. And, and so that like is something that I just, I've seen many, many times be very powerful in helping people not fall away from the faith. So New Yorkers do not need to be told that, it is good to live your life in service of excellence and aesthetic beauty because that's what they already believe. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, they, they've been raised on that gospel <laughs> and, um, and it's very much like a gospel of self-creation. Like you need to become the person who is successful and is also s- expressing yourself and is also, you know, at the highest level of excellence. And, um, is also very like sensuous and like, you know, like owning the, owning the conservatives or whatever. Um, And so when, when New Yorkers watch Babette's Feast, what they, what they hear is the line where the sisters basically put that in. So the line in the Isaac Dennison story is one of the sisters says, um, it's after the meal and like all that's left, like all the money is gone and all that's left are the dirty dishes. And then the sisters realize that Pebet has spent her entire lottery winnings on this one meal and it's all over. And one of the sisters says, but it's not over um, in paradise, something like in, in paradise, you will be the artist that God made you to be and how you will enchant the angels. And this sense of like there being a purpose and a permanence to the beauty that we make. Yeah, yeah. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible? or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest 
and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. What would you say, you know, for for listeners who are finding themselves kind of caught between, you know, either materialism on the one hand, um, that's just saying, you know, we just focus on the here and now. Um, we're not actually asking questions about what is beyond the here and now. And, you know, maybe a kind of a more fundamentalist view of religiosity on the other hand, that's feeling, you know, just what we need to do is to take power at any cost. And so if, if people have experienced, you know, the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of the church, um, what does a day in the life look like to continue in that in-between space? I think that, um, you know, striving to be a someone who is a culture maker or a culture peacemaker or a culture, you know, cultivator, um, I think is a lot more helpful. So, I mean, whatever you're doing, if it's kind of cathartic in a kind of like owning the libs way or owning the cons way, it's probably bad news, which <laughs> <That's good. laughs> which is annoying because catharsis feels good. Um, <laughs> right. And sometimes we can have catharsis, but like, you know, it, it you one has to be governed by reason and love. Like yes. that, there's not yeah. like a secret third way <laughs> beyond <laughs> right. being like you know either ungoverned or governed by reason and love. There's not a secret third way actually. <laughs> um, so you know, if you think that your faction in the culture war ought to be ruling America, you should rule yourself first. How would you encourage Christians maybe where they, they would say, well, you know, that's kind of pie in the sky. I would love to do something beautiful, but I just, you know, I don't have time. (laughs) Um, You know, what, what might be just some practical ways that we can practice experiencing beauty, noticing beauty, having it inform how we relate to people, to the church in our online interactions. What does that look like, do you think? So I would, the first thing I guess I would say is pray because much as, you know, faith and hope are supernatural gifts that we don't manufacture in ourselves, but are gifts of God. Um, I'm not particular, I'm not reformed enough. My husband thinks that I'm reformed enough to know that. Experiencing beauty and noticing beauty um, is also a supernatural gift, I think. Um, and yearning for it and yearning for it to be permanent is a supernatural gift. Uh, you know, desire is is a supernatural gift. And um, so pray for it first. You know, if you're the kind of person who's like, well, it's the loving thing to, you know, is to prevent someone from doing something more evil. And that means that we have to like, if, if you find yourself making a lot of those moves where you're like kind of trying to r- wriggle out of um, more normy or gentle approaches to what it means to be Christian, like basically if the Sermon on the Mount really, you know, if you reread it and you're like, this is kind of alien to my whole way of being in the world or on Twitter, that's a, then you have run into a problem. And it doesn't mean that you need to become a lib and it doesn't mean that you need to, um, you know, let injustice, you know, if, if you're, if this is the way you think, it doesn't mean that you need to like let injustice off the hook or let, pe- let oppressors off the hook. Um, but 
we do have to imitate Christ and we do have to do all the things that sound completely ridiculous um, in terms of loving our enemies for real, like loving them, the like desiring their good, wanting to be, you know, eventually delight in their company in the kingdom. Like the people you hate the most, we need to desire their good and we need to want to be their friend. Yeah. You know, and I think I also hear you saying that there's a sense in which, you know, if we think about beauty um, as an antidote to some of these kind of culture war issues, that pursuing beauty, uh, you know, makes you vulnerable, right? It's, it makes you open um, in a way that even some of this kind of passive aggressive sociologizing is, um, is a way to kind of self-protect. And, you know, whether it's passive aggressive or aggressive aggressive, um, there's a way in which both are not actually being vulnerable to people or to God, but beauty is, beauty is opposite of that. Yeah. I mean, beauty, the, the desire for beauty is, um, fundamentally scary. And, you know, Plato talks about the, the way that like, um, we experience it as a lack because we don't have that beauty. And, you know, C.S. Lewis talked about Senzukt as like, it's an experience of beauty, but it's also a longing for beauty because you lack it. And the desire to get on the other that. side of the door, you, right? Yeah. 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 You like remember it. It's like, it's like remembering, it's like anticipating. It's like, and you know, that's the kind of like, um, you know, to travel hopefully is better than to arrive because like when we are in that position of hope, like that's actually more accurate to where we are in the world because we are not fully experiencing. We are not yet. We don't know in full yet. We are seeing through a glass darkly and we are not actually experiencing the fullness of God. We're not experiencing the beatific vision yet. We're experiencing hints of it and we long for it. And that longing is like a compass and knowing that like, we're going to go through our lives experiencing hints of this, experiencing the fulfillment of this in hints. And the majority of a lot of what we're going to experience of the goodness of God is the goodness of hope and hope as defined as, you know, longing for the kingdom and that desire for beauty. I think, you know, you've really just kind of cast some solid, you know, to use that word again, images about what does it look like when our longing actually has a place to belong, right? Um, In the final day and in union with Christ versus, you know, trying to create these sorts of experiences that we, that feel solid, but actually are pretty, pretty passing. Um, you know, that is a hopeful way in which to live as Christians rather than, you know, when we get like tunnel vision on what we think will satisfy in the moment. Well, thank you again for for helping reframe our vision around uh, the beauty of God and the beauty of His church instead of culture wars. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Really good to meet. The Cartographers is hosted by Bryce Hales and Ashley Hales. It's edited by Nathan Michelle. The Cartographers is a production of the Willowbray Institute. Find out more at willowbray.org.